Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. But here we are. It's a new year, January 1st, and we are gathered together to, uh, hey, center. Come on. Uh, 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 <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a New Year's thing, you know, this will help, help me to teach, so do it for me. Well, I came across this uh, quote from Arthur Pink, everybody familiar with Arthur Pink? Reformed theologian, I don't know what his dates are. Probably early, yeah, really? That early? I thought it was into the 20th century. But anyway, probably turn of the century, something like that, um, the last century. He says this, and I thought it was encouraging on this day. Oh, to enter this new year with the realization that the one who loved me and gave himself for me accompanies me into it. Then why should I fear what may lay ahead of me? Whatever may be my circumstances, whatever changes I may pass through, whatever I may be called upon to bear, Christ himself will be my constant companion. But only faith, not imagination or feelings, will be able to realize and appreciate his presence. So let's, let's go into this new year, uh, remembering that Christ is with us and, um, and believe exercise our faith this year, remembering whatever the highs and lows, whatever uh, mountaintops and valleys you go through, Christ is with you uh, through all of that and guiding you. Let's pray, and then we'll turn to our new topic. Father, thank you for this new year. Thank you for your mercies in the past year. Thank you for uh, the knowledge we have that you will always guide us in the future. I pray as we uh, study your word today, as we gather to uh, worship, to exhort one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, to receive uh, from your word preached, uh, Father, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would fill our hearts Fill our hearts with faith, fill our hearts with joy, uh, fill our hearts with power that comes from the Spirit. And bless us now as we, as we study and as we discuss. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So open your Bibles. to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, and I'll start with verse 1, and we'll read down to 11. This is the word of the Lord, Simon Peter, a bondservant or a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ 
to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. So the, if you saw the email that went out on Friday, you um, saw that we're starting a new Sunday school class called Christian Rigor. Christian Rigor. And the reason I want to have a class, I don't know how many weeks it will go. We have a lot of topics we can cover when it comes to approaching different aspects of the Christian life with rigor. This one is just generally about Christian rigor, so I don't know how many weeks it will go, but the reason I wanted to focus on this is because we are lazy. We are lazy. I am lazy when it comes to pursuing what leads to maturity in the Christian faith. Raise your hand if you're... No. I'm assuming all of you are, are frustrated by your laziness when it comes to pursuing Almighty God and His kingdom and His righteousness. And so I want to I um, slap us around a bit and um, push us toward uh, living a, a rigorous Christian life. Now, a lot of people think that rigor is antithetical to Christianity, right? And a lot of reformed, sort of quasi-reformed antinomians would, would think that rigor is actually a forsaking of the gospel, right? Because, you, you know, that's relying on works. But that's not what we're talking about here, right? Um, when I talk about Christian rigor, I'm not talking about your justification, that passive righteousness that you receive as a gift. 
right? You can't do anything to earn your justification. Is that biblical? That's a gift from God. That's by grace. That is something he gives out. Let's read Luther's Galatians commentary together, right? That's what that's all about, justification. That's what we're not talking about here. But that is the fundamental, that, that has to be part of the groundwork when we talk about Christian rigor. I'm not, talk, I'm not exhorting you how you can save yourself. I'm exhorting those who are saved how to mature in the faith and pursue what? Their sanctification. Okay? So, so the whole premise, and we're not going to talk about it, um, is the justification that God gives to you as a gift, that passive righteousness that Jesus, through his merit, has uh, won for you, okay? And that comes by faith, right? We receive that as a gift, and even the faith that we must exercise is given to us as a gift, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? And so, um, you're justified. So, this is, this is a class for, for justified Christians. If you're not justified, if you don't have faith in Jesus, if you don't know him, if you don't revel in the fact that there is free grace that has set you free from the tyranny of the law, well, then this class will make you strive to save yourself and you will become very, very frustrated. But if you're justified and you have peace with God, well, then it will be, now be your delight to pursue rigorously holiness and maturity. And so that's the first thing that needs to be said. So what is, it, what is rigor? What does the word rigor mean? Well, um, it's from the Latin rigeo, which means to be stiff, to be stiff, right? And uh, the 1828 Webster, you go to the old Webster because um, their definitions are more reliable than the modern Webster and the games they're playing, so I've read. But in the 1828 Webster, here are a few of the definitions of rigor. The first one is severity of life, austerity, voluntary submission to pain, abstinence, or mortification. And then there's another definition, strictness, exactness without allowance, latitude, or indulgence, as the rigor of criticism. To execute a law with rigor, to enforce moral duties with rigor, right? So, severity of life, um, vo- uh, a willingness to submit yourself to pain, that's rigor. A strictness, not, a, not giving yourself allowance everywhere, right? So, that's what we're talking about, Christian rigor. And so many people would say that that is, that is antithetical to the gospel um, because, because, you know, 
everything good in our lives is by the grace of God, right? So it leads to us. That doctrine, which is true, can lead to passivity, right? Everything has to, be, has to happen to me. And so for me to be godly, God's got to make me godly. God, I've got to wait for God to zap me. And, and yet God has laid out for us in his word means of grace, pursuits toward growth and maturity. And he says, well, why don't you do what's in my word? Why don't you pursue those things? Why don't you work out your own salvation? And yes, that is me at work in you. But, but really, you have to get to work working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And avail yourselves of all the things that Scripture says you should do. We get lazy, right? And then we complain to God about how we're not godly. You know, or we compare ourselves to others and we say, God, you haven't made me like so-and-so. Who is godly? What's up? What are you waiting for? And you begin accusing God instead of pursuing holiness, instead of pursuing your sanctification, instead of putting to death the deeds of the body in the power of the Spirit. And so that's what this will be, be about. Christian rigor. Um, <clears throat> there, I mean, I, I reflect on my Christian walk, how I would, I've been a Christian for, well, 2023 will mark my 30th year after my conversion. 93, summer of, definitely converted that summer. And so, 30 years, and I can look back and I can say that the happiest times of my Christian walk when it have been when I've been rigorous in my pursuit of God, when I've been thirsting for holiness, when I've been motivated to work to know Him and to see His face. Those have been the happiest times. And then there have been other times where I've left those things off in the most intense pursuit in my life were my sins, my lusts, my, um, my greed, my laziness, right? And those were miserable times. Uh, and, and we would call them uh, backsliding times, right? I think it's right to talk about backsliding. Um, so, so that's why I want to do this, and it's, you know, it's the new year, um, we will spend, I don't know, again, how many weeks, but we'll take up various topic, topics and apply uh, scripture on those and see how scripture bids us be rigorous in so many different areas in our lives. Scripture's filled with exhortations, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to cut down. It's hard to cut down the number of topics that we could approach from uh, the standpoint of rigor. But Scripture's filled with exhortations to holiness, to faith, maturity, rigor is everywhere in Scripture. Spiritual lethargy 
is overcome by spiritual rigor. Um, spiritual lethargy, spiritual backsliding, spiritual passivity, spiritual, um, spiritual laziness is overcome by spiritual rigor, just as, uh, you know, the, the lethargy, the, the, uh, the joints and the muscles uh, getting tight is, um, they are loosened by bodily exercise, right? All of us feel that in the mornings or the evenings, mornings when you get out of bed and take those first few steps and your knees hurt and you're like, I've got to stretch. But we don't stretch because we're lazy. <laughs> and so we need to spiritually stretch to overcome our, uh, the just spiritual um, rigor mortis. Um, I could easily have called this Sunday school class discipline, you know, discipline in the Christian walk or uh, pursuing holiness or something like, along those lines. But here, listen to these passages. I've got a long list of passages here that exhort us to rigor in the Christian walk. Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore, since we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now that verse, when we talk about Christian rigor, should have been one of the first that popped into your mind, right? You have, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So there's the first one. There's rigor, resisting sin, laying aside every encumbrance right? And, and laying aside the sin which easily entangles us. And then, of course, the, the image that's used is a race. Let us run the race with endurance. And you don't, you don't get into a marathon having not readied yourself for a marathon, having not been very disciplined and rigorous in your training, right? And so um, the, the race you're in requires you to constantly be training. And training is painful. Training is maybe more painful than the actual race, right? Because at least you're motivated with a little bit of adrenaline on the race day, you know? 
more passages here. Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It does not just say, you know, um, obey because God is at work in you. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you. And so your work, if effective, will be God at work in you, undoubtedly. But if you don't work, God's not going to work. Right? I mean, it's, it's a... God may be gracious, may drag you along, but he calls us he calls us to work. 1 Corinthians 9.24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I mean, think of him saying that. Think of the Apostle Paul, you know, who, who wrote all of these scriptures saying that of himself. I need to run. I need to box. I need to make progress. I need to go, go, go. Because, because, because my body continually wants to drag me back, right? My body, my flesh, the, the world, the devil want me not to make any progress. And yet I have, to, I have to fight, I have to run, I have to move forward. And if I don't, I'm going to be disqualified even, even though I've been a preacher of the I've been an apostle. I mean, that's what he's contemplating here. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now those are rigorous things to do, right? Rejoice always. Your feelings militate against that. Pray without ceasing. Always be in a frame of, a frame of minds where you are communicating with Almighty God. And praying, in everything give thanks, for everything give thanks. Hard to do. It takes maturity. Uh, Psalm 1.1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Not just day, day and night. Rigor, right? Sally, you have to sit in the middle. I mean, it's weird that you would be the only one over there. We don't want you to feel left out. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. 
But the one who prospers is the man who has the self-control to not sit in the seat of scoffers and to not stand in the path of sinners and to not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Proverbs 10. I mean, how many Proverbs could we go to that are like a, a two by four to the head as far as our laziness and our lack of rigor? Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. We've got to have fat souls, right? Being rigorous with ourselves is for the purpose of gaining weight, spiritual weight, right? Getting fat, having fat souls. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. Plans of the diligent. 1 John 2.3, I mean, how many verses in 1 John could we pull out? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Simple one. One who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. What? What? need grace. Grace, 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 grace. Let's be antinomian. Let's, let's just, you know, let's go full Lutheran. Let's go modern Lutheran, right? All the spiritual children of, who misread Luther, who, who don't care if you sin, and it's all grace, 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 grace. Abandon the third use of the law. But there it is. We are to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. And we think, that's too hard. He was without sin. He was God. And, and, and yet, God has supplied you with the Holy Spirit who lives within you. Should that not lead to at least warfare? between the flesh and the spirit, if not taking of ground by the Holy Spirit, who is more powerful than your flesh, because he is almighty God. Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. In other words, we pursue our sanctification. It will go through our lives. There is no such thing as Christian perfection. Okay? But we must pursue it and we must grow. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. 
Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Right? So there's one where it's like, um, immediately gives you the, the rigorous pursuit that you're supposed to have. Be anxious for nothing. How? Prayer, supplication with thanksgiving. And so if you're anxious and you're not praying, you're not being rigorous in your life. God has given you the antidote to anxiety. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. And so if, if anxiety is one of your besetting sins, then, then you should memorize this passage and at least attempt it and see if God is not true in what he says. Matthew 5. <laughs> Rigor in the Christian life, Right? You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, and we just shut down at that point, right? It's like, okay, there is none righteous, no, not one. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your appointment opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. And of course then it goes on to adultery and then it goes on to divorce and then it goes on to vows and Jesus is, is um, authoritatively commenting on the Old Testament law, giving us its full interpretation. We learn from Matthew 5 that all the Ten Commandments are synecdoches. They are a part for a whole. It says do not commit murder, but that means a thousand things. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then the passage we just read, right? The passage we just read, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, applying all diligence, applying all diligence, right? Getting up and doing the exercises to train for the marathon, right? Applying all diligence in your faith, right? Your faith, saved by your faith justify. In your faith, add these things, right? 
add these things. In your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. Your perseverance, godliness. Godliness, brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness, love. If these qualities are yours, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I skipped a phrase in there. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, you feel like you're increasing in your self-control. You feel like you're increasing in your love. You feel like you're increasing in your brotherly kindness, in your knowledge. Do you feel like from five years ago, you've become more morally excellent than you were then, right? From five years ago, are you more morally excellent? Do you have more knowledge? Do you have more self-control? Do you persevere through trials? Are you godly, right? Is that increasing? And so he, he says, you know, these need to be yours. They need to be increasing, and then you'll be useful in the true, not, you'll be useful and fruitful in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these qualities, having forgotten his justification, having forgotten his purification from his former sins, right? He goes on to say, um, that person is blind, short-sighted blind and not making progress. Now, what, one of the things that got me onto this topic and was a jolt to my system and was sort of a, 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 a kick to, to not just w get me going out of my laziness, but getting me to contemplate that my theology had, had made room for laziness okay? My theology made room for laziness as I lulled around in my slumber and asked God to make me holy, right? As I pursued none of the things that he had told me to pursue and then told him to make me holy, make me make progress. And he says, well, why don't you obey my commands, right? If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Why don't you read the scriptures? Why don't you find out how I've exhorted you every day of your life by your scriptures and find it out and live according to that and see if there isn't fruitfulness and growth that comes from this. Part of it was reading Lloyd-Jones' sermons that I've been reading. I just finished this. Um, Spiritual Depression by Lloyd-Jones. And you would think that a book called Spiritual Depression would be like this this hug for all depressed Christians who, you know, are struggling with their sins and just can't seem to make progress. But he's like, get off your butt. I mean, and he pushes for rigor. God has told you a thousand ways for you to make progress in the faith, and you want none of them. You're so lazy. He just keeps coming back to this point. And that's, that, this book would not be written by um, modern psychologists. 
I was going to name some Christian counselors, but I don't want to offend anybody. Okay? But it's scriptural, okay? We just read all of those scriptures. Now, I want, I want to share a portion of this that is one of those kicks in the butt. Um, page 206 here, near the end. He says, stick with me here. Perhaps the best way of putting this matter is to put it in a simple historical manner. Wait, uh, am I starting at the end? Yeah, this is it. He, he makes the point that, look, Christian sin, Christians backslide, that happens, right? We don't just tell backsliders they're not Christians. They're backsliding Christians, right? We struggle with our sins. He makes that point. These people are Christians, but they are unhappy. They are most de definitively ineffective. Their lives do not seem to lead to anything, and they are not helpful to other people. Not only that, but they are not very productive as far as they themselves are concerned, and their faith does not fill them with joy and with certainty. They are barren and unfruitful. The words really describe them, ineffective in helping others and also lacking in knowledge and understanding. They are not growing in the knowledge of the Lord. Here is this tremendous knowledge and understanding that is available, but they have not got it. They have not advanced in it. They have not grown. They are, not unfruit they are unfruitful in that respect. In fact, though they are definitively and specifically Christian, they seem to have very little to show for it. Also, they seem to be failing to understand the meaning of their conversion. They seem to have forgotten the fact that they have been cleansed from their old sins, and they are living as if they had, that had not happened. Now, all these things always and inevitably go together. When there is a lack of understanding and, and fruitfulness in this matter of comprehension, you will generally get a corresponding failure in the life, both with respect to its own holiness and its usefulness and value to other people. Now, that, that is the description which the apostle gives of these people. And of course, we are all, alas, quite familiar with the type. It is the kind of man that you cannot deny as a Christian, though there is little in his life to show for it. He seems to be bound in shallows and in miseries. He does not have, give the impression of being, as our Lord said, a Christian would be when he received the Holy Spirit. Out of his inward parts shall flow rivers of living water. No, the impression he gives is one of barrenness and unfruitfulness. Nothing is being fructified by him. He seems to be passing nothing on to others. And as regards himself, his life is weak, and it does not seem to be increasing and developing. The whole life seems utterly ineffective, and he is downcast and unhappy and shaken by doubts. He does not seem to be able to give a reason for the hope that is in him. He says he believes, and yet he is always in this position in which the very foundation of his faith seems liable to be shaken. Now that is the condition which the apostle deals with here, in which we are now considering. The first thing we have to consider is the cause of the condition. Why is it that anybody ever gets into such a state? There are Christians who cor correspond to this description. Why are they like that? Why are they unlike other Christians who are fruitful and whose lives are effective and living and life-giving? What is the difference? That is the question we must consider, and it seems to be perfectly clear that the apostle here tells these people very plainly that there is only one ultimate cause for, the, for all the manifestation of this depression, and that is a lack of discipline. 
not what we wanted to hear, Mr. Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Reverend Dr. Lloyd-Jones. That is the real trouble. It is a sheer absence of discipline and order in their life. But fortunately, again, for us, the apostle does not leave it at a general statement. The New Testament writers never stop at generalities. They always go further and bring out the details. They consider the problem point by point, and fortunately, the apostle does that in this particular instance. Why are these people lacking in discipline in their lives? Why is this slackness, this indolence, so apparent in their lives? The first cause seems to be that they have a wrong view of faith. Now, this I find in the beginning of the fifth verse where he says, and beside all this, for this very cause, giving all diligence, add to your faith. This is the, the Second Peter 1 passage. Supplement your faith, furnish out your faith with the things which he then proceeds to mention. Now, there surely is a suggestion that they have a wrong view of faith. That is something which is very common. They seem to have had a kind of magical view of faith. The idea, in other words, that as long as you have faith, all is well. That your faith will work automatically in your life and that all you need to do as a Christian is just to believe the truth. That's modern evangelicalism, a magical view of faith. That's not the Reformed theology, okay? Um, you must accept the faith, and having done that, all the rest will just happen to you. You just take one step. You make a decision, or whatever it may be called, and that is all that is necessary. I describe it as almost a magical view of faith or an automatic conception of faith, but perhaps I can put it in a different form. Very often, there is what we must needs describe as a mystical view of faith. This certainly accounts for the trouble in many people. By a mystical view, I mean a conception of faith which always thinks of it as a whole. Putting it negatively, I mean that such people do not realize that faith needs to be supplemented by virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, as the apostle shows here. They have one formula only, and the one formula is that you must always be looking to the Lord. And as long as you look to the Lord. There is nothing else to do. They say that any attempt to do anything else is dropping back to the salvation by works position. So if you have a problem in your Christian life, they say to you, just look to the Lord. Just abide in the Lord. <laughs> so good. Just, you know, believe the gospel more. That's what you hear today. That's Thule Chavidjan, right? Believe the gospel more. He's an antinomian. Just believe the gospel more. You just got to believe the gospel more. Don't be rigorous. That's salvation by works. Just believe more. This is a very common error, he says. You will find it in a most interesting form in the case of expositors who hold this view. In expounding certain passages of Scripture where much emphasis is put upon details, they are obviously in difficulty because from their standpoint, you must not be concerned about details. There's only one thing to do. You abide in the Lord and look to Him. And as long as you do that, there is nothing more to be done. This is a most productive cause. Um, this is a most productive cause of this kind of spiritual depression and lethargy with which we are dealing. Such people spend their time in this unhappy condition. All along, they are trying to apply this exhortation to just abide in the Lord and to look to the Lord. And for a while, all seems to be well, but then somehow 
or another, something seems to grow, go wrong, and they do not seem to be abiding, and they are unhappy once more. The problem returns, and so the whole of their life is spent in trying to maintain this one position, which they recognize. Now, this is clearly a very important matter, and we must be sure that our view of faith in the New Testament view is the New Testament view, and that we realize what the apostle means here when he goes on to say that we have to add to our faith, to supplement our faith with certain other things. The second general cause, I, I want to just read the whole thing, but I can't. I'm going to read as, a little bit more. The second general cause of this condition is undoubtedly nothing but sheer laziness or indolence, nothing but slackness, or to use the apostle's language, a lack of diligence. He says, Besides, beside this, giving all diligence. He's very concerned to impress that upon us, and so he repeats it in the 10th verse. I think we all know something about this. There's a kind of general in indolence or laziness which afflicts all of us and is undoubtedly produced by the devil himself. Have we not all noticed that when it comes to things in the spiritual life, listen to this, we do not seem to have the same zeal and enthusiasm, nor do we apply the same energy as we do with our secular calling or vocation or our profession or business, our pleasure or something we happen to be interested in? Have we not all noticed that when we have been working quite well, that somehow if we turn for a season of prayer, we suddenly feel tired and fatigued. Is it not curious that we always become tired and sleepy when we want to read the Bible? We are fully persuaded that it is something purely physical and that we really cannot help ourselves, but it is as certain as anything can be that the moment we begin to apply ourselves to spiritual things, we shall immediately come face to face with this problem of laziness that afflicts us, however alert and energetic we may have been previously. He goes on, he talks about procrastination. We desire to read the Bible. We want to study it. We want to read a commentary, but we do not feel like it at the moment. We think it's a bad thing to try to do these things when we do not feel at our best. You know, I mean, just this is so good. So helpful. Does that not resonate with you? right? Aren't you depressed? We all go just from, we don't go from faith to faith. We go from depression to depression. And it's because we're lazy. We're not pursuing God. God has laid open his glories to us in his word. And we're flipping through reels. So, some classes in the coming days. Rigor in prayer, rigor in love of our brothers, rigor in faith, rigor in fighting unbelief, rigor in fighting our feelings, rigor in studying scripture, rigor in fathering, rigor in mothering, rigor in serving others, rigor in accepting God's providence, rigor in self-examination. Those are just topics I jotted down. So, we'll give a Sunday to each one of those or others that come to mind. Rigor, right? So, let's... Let's put on our training shoes and get rigorous about our lives and get some self-control and self-discipline. And we will find that we are much happier. Much happier because we're getting to know our God and he's going to take pleasure in you. Yep. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us, but you are a father who gives us direction, who tells us the way to health and joy, who scourges all those sons he receives. And so, Father, bless this time we have in the coming weeks and bless our service now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.